0: Well, good morning. Glad you, had you uh, decided to brave another session of this today. Um, Jason Fikes from ACU Press told me to tell you here at the beginning that um, the, this book, uh, the, new, the new book, is uh, basically sold out here this week. But if uh, you can go by the the press display and. Uh, pay for one at $15, which is cheaper than the cover price, and it'll be shipped to you with no shipping. And it'll be, it's not really available yet, I think, on Amazon. And so if you want to do that, uh, he invites you to go by the press and uh, sign up for that. And so one, it'll be shipped directly to your address. Uh, How many uh, were, were not present yesterday? in this classic, okay, a good number, okay. Let me um, give a quick summary of my two key points that I began with yesterday. I, I, be, I begin my thinking in, in the last couple of years about the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit with the question, um, it, it's clear to me that the, the, the Holy Spirit has come to the center of attention by the Christian world in the last, say, 30 years or so. And my question was, why? I would, I would claim that this focus, this prominence of this doctrine uh, now is unprecedented in Christian history. And my question was, why? And I, I spent a number of minutes giving three reasons why I think this, this dramatic shift has occurred. Uh, the, I think the most important reason is, uh, which I developed some yesterday, was uh, the collapse of Christendom in, in the West in general, and in America, the sharp uh, recession of what I would call a functional Christendom in North America, uh, where the Christian faith was sort of semi-established It had a kind of cultural prominence. <laughs> Uh, but now we find ourselves uh, more and more on the margins of culture, and I would argue that when in that location, we begin to realize that we need power from on high to engage in God's mission. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, and, and one of those uh, other of those reasons was the dramatic. I would say the dramatic refocusing an understanding of God's mission. I said yesterday that in the first half or so of the 20th century, uh, there was a rediscovery, you might say, of the mission of God. Uh, And the shorthand term that emerged to describe this was Missio Dei, uh, the Trinity in mission so that it was, a new understanding arose that, that mission is not some department of the church's program, but it is the heart of what God is about in the world. And when one lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, one is engaging in the mission of God, taking up the mission of God. We'll talk a little more about that uh, today. And my basic argument in uh, the book is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and God's mission wax and wane in tandem. That when a sense of the mission of God recedes, as it did beginning, say, in the fourth century with the emergence of Christendom, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit also receded. And in the 20th century, when This new robust sense of the mission of God has been rediscovered in the world. Guess what? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit comes to the fore as well. So, that the Holy Spirit, I I think, in Scripture is we could call the missional spirit. The Spirit is God's missionary. And um, that to me goes a long way in helping us understand the current landscape where. The Christian faith, over the last 50 years or so, has been exploding in the global south, receding in the West, but exploding in the global south. Um, So that's sort of the large uh, argument I'm, I'm making as we talk about this. And today I'm going to say that the issue, some of the more maybe controversial issue of the spirits' gifts must be placed in that kind of framework, a kind of reframing, a kind of larger framing of of these fairly controversial uh, issues. So I'm going to begin today with a bold claim. And this claim is that the mission of the Spirit of God is equally important to the mission of the Son of God. Does that kind of feel a little jolting to to you? Repeat that. That God sent the Spirit on a mission and God sent His Son on a mission, and these two missions are equal in importance. One is not more important than the other. Though in the Western Christian tradition, in the Christendom centuries, the spirit tended to be both depersonalized and demoted and become sort of the shy member of the Trinity, a junior member of the Trinity. And I'm wanting to claim here that the spirit of God is not the junior member of the Trinity. Um, So in the Trinitarian relationality, the Spirit is not inferior to the Son. Or to to use the image of the second century Christian church father, um, Irenaeus, um, the Son and the Spirit are, to use, his metaphor was, the two hands of God. Different functions, but two Equally significant arms or hands. And we see in the New Testament, for example, uh, how the Son was dependent upon the Holy Spirit in His mission and ministry. And we see how the Spirit was dependent upon the Son. In the New Testament, there is a deep, let's call it, reciprocity between the Son and the Spirit. Just as a reminder, Christ is first born of the Spirit, then anointed by the Spirit at the Jordan uh, uh, River, empowered by the Spirit to live a fully human life, then following His death and resurrection, He is exalted by the Spirit. and. The Spirit was Jesus' inseparable companion throughout his human life, from conception, baptism, wilderness temptations, the working of miracles and signs, his death and resurrection. It was the Spirit's sustenance that enabled Jesus to live a life as a human being. Um, And the Spirit, in turn, was dependent upon the Son. with the the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, he, it says, receives the Spirit in a fuller and new way. And then as Lord now, exalted Lord, pours out the Spirit for the mission of God to continue his own mission at Pentecost. A deep reciprocity between um, the mission of the Spirit and the mission of the Son. I want to talk more about that here just for a few minutes to set up the rest of my time, my, my the rest of my talk. Let's be clear that Christ is the message and focus of the gospel. The Spirit, The Spirit works to constantly lift up Christ and shine the light, as it were, on Christ, to exalt Christ always enabling him to be the center of the gospel. The very truth about Christ becomes intelligible through the deep work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Or as Paul Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, and we have received the Spirit who is from God that we may understand what God freely gives us. And of course, as we um, uh, heard from Don last night, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. And in John's writings, we see a way of knowing by the Spirit that is part of, I would say, the normal life in Christian community. 1 John 3 says, This is how we know that Christ lives in us. We know it. How? By the Spirit. Has given us. The mission of the Son becomes operative and effective through the mission of the Spirit. This is how the Trinity in mission operates. God reaches through the Son in the power of the Spirit to reconcile and transform broken human beings and broken creation, and then leads people in the Spirit, through the Son, back to the Father. This is the movement. This is the proportionality of the Trinity. In this movement, I say again, the missions of the Son and the mission of the Spirit are equal, each according to its distinct function. Now, let me ask a, maybe a practical question. What does this mean for our preaching and our teaching? Does it mean that we give, must give equal time to equal missions? Do we place half our focus on Jesus the Son and half on the Holy Spirit of God? Do we preach Pentecost and the Spirit as central to the Gospel? we give equal space in our theology books to the Son and to the Spirit? How do we proceed if the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit are equal, as I would claim? Well, to answer that, I would say we do what the apostles did after the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. What did they do? They proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. That's what they preach. We proclaim that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and was raised on the third day. We declare in our preaching and teaching that the very person of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, embodied in His own life the reign of God. We declare, as Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 2, we we declare the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The New Testament does not make the Holy Spirit the central content of the gospel. The first missionaries did not proclaim the Holy Spirit They proclaimed Christ, Christ as Messiah, Christ as Lord, Christ as Redeemer, Christ as the one who bore our sins, and Christ as the victor over the powers and principalities of this age. But still, the Spirit is not the junior partner, though the Christian tradition has often treated the Spirit that way. I want to read three paragraphs from a Roman Catholic writer on the Holy Spirit named Killian McDonnell. This is almost like a poem. It's beautiful. Without the mission of the Spirit, what is left of faith and experience are the dried structural bones of religion. Liturgy becomes ceremony and ritual. Prayer becomes formula. Theology is the proposition of ideology that excites and changes no one. Without the mission of the Spirit, no one can grasp the hem of the Son's garment. But without the mission of the Son, the mission of the Spirit is devoid of the flesh and materiality that makes salvation history possible. Without the mission of the sun, the mission of the Spirit floats above time looking for flesh it can touch and transform. Without the mission of the sun, the church is a mystical illusion, shadows upon the wall. So, here's the last spirit. So, the two missions of Christ and the Spirit are not separate, cannot be divorced, each is present at the interior of the other, a deep calling unto deep, light illuminating light, witnessing to the love of the Father, bending over the world with troubled love, Gathering humanity and the universe with the two divine arms, the Son and the Spirit, into the untroubled glory that is the ultimate consummation of all. A broad, I think, and beautiful picture of the Trinity in mission. We are in mission because the Trinity is in mission. so with with that kind of backdrop against that backdrop, I want to turn to look at two key aspects of the spirit and mission, and that is first empowering for mission, what sometimes <coughs> more controversially we call baptism in the Holy Spirit, and secondly uh, Bestowing, the Spirit bestowing gifts for mission. Now, uh, I'm going to begin with uh, looking at Galatians just a, just a moment here. Um, <clears throat> Paul understands the Spirit as experiential empowerment in the body of Christ, in the community of faith. When he engages the Galatians about the place of works of the law, which they are misconstruing, an essential part of his argument comes from their and his experience. In Galatians 3, 2, beginning in 2, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Have you experienced so much in vain? Paul here is assuming in Galatians, not arguing for, but assuming the the dynamic presence of the Spirit among the Galatians in their their fellowship. He assumes that his readers were all made alive by the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 14. That they all received new birth by the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 29. He assumes miracles by the Spirit. Chapter 3, 4 through 5 and that they have received the experience of sonship with God, the Abba relationship in chapter, um, five, chapter 4, verse 5, and that through the Spirit, he assumes that they have entered into nothing less than new creation. And he says new creation is everything. So for Paul, we could summarize and say here that the coming of the Spirit was an identifiable event experienced in the community of faith as empowerment and manifested in a variety of ways. But having said that, Paul can go on in other writings, like Ephesians 5 to uh, exhort believers to be filled with the Spirit, or you could render it to keep on being filled with the Spirit. The, the Ephesian disciples are, are already a temple of the Holy Spirit, but Paul s- still tells them that in verse, chapter 2, verse 22, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The Spirit already dwells in the church, yet the church needs further filling with the Spirit. What do we make of this? How can those who are already baptized in the Spirit (coughs) receive further filling with the Spirit? How can we think about this ongoing process of being filled with the Spirit? Well, clearly this is a metaphor that Paul uses to describe our ongoing openness to receptivity to the Holy Spirit. Just as the spirit has been poured out, beginning at Pentecost, so the community of faith and, and us as individual disciples can be filled with the Spirit. I would say that to be filled with the Spirit is to come under more intense and more intimate influence of the Spirit in our lives. Clearly, I I think we can say that the Spirit's uh, Spirit's filling can be diminished in our lives. It can be quenched, to use one of Paul's images, and subsequently experienced again on many occasions throughout uh, our life as Christians. (coughs) Disciples can be filled with the Spirit for special purposes, to to enable them to perform some new calling or ministry. To equip them for a new and arduous service. Um, And Paul in Philippians 1 also speaks about God's provision of the Spirit, he says, when he's facing hardship. There's a case when he was, in, in a sense, filled or refilled with the Spirit. Especially, I think, in the throes An arduous nature of mission. Disciples can experience God's love and God's empowering presence in fuller and more intense ways. Paul uses in Ephesians 3 the phrase strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That's an experience of the filling of the Spirit. And because the Spirit is present and active in the body of Christ as well as in our own individual temples, we can experience new feelings of the Spirit. And I expect most all of us have, whether we called it that or not. Sometimes this stirs fresh, new joy and peace in our lives when we face hardship. Sometimes this filling lights the fire of mission within us when it's kind to flickered down. Sometimes it sustains us in a season of heavy burdens. And there's a biblical rubric, we might say, to guide us in our experience of the filling of the Spirit. It is for the common good. As we heard Don say so beautifully from 1 Corinthians 14 last night, it's for the body, to build up the body. It's for mission. And there's a few, some cases in Paul's writings where the terms spirit and power are almost interchangeable, as in 1 Corinthians 2 when he speaks of the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Virtually interchangeable. Sometimes he can say in Galatians 3, this power is the source of signs and wonders. Sometimes it's the source of a deeper and fuller conviction in our lives. But note, this empowerment from the Spirit is of a particular sort. It is, I like to use the phrase, it's the power of cruciform love. It's the power of sacrificial love. It's not just any kind of power. It's not raw power. It's Jesus-shaped power. And in fact, Michael Gorman, who's done wonderful work on cruciformity in the writings of Paul, says this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the combination of cruciformity and power the test for all claims to possession of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit. In other words, the Spirit empowers us to serve and edify. How? In the way of Jesus, which is the way of self-giving love. That's the kind of power it is, a love that's ultimately defined, of course, by the cross. Without this love as the fundamental reality, the Spirit's empowerment avails little impulses, almost pointless. So, the Spirit is the empowering Spirit, empowering for mission, um, filling and refilling us at different seasons for different purposes in our lives. Now, I want to turn to um, the Spirit as the giver of gifts for mission. And this is uh, where I would Got my title for today's lesson, The Charismatic Spirit, and I want to be very, I want to virtually read this section um, to get to be carefully precise in what I want to say. One clear way this empowerment by the Spirit was manifested in the early church was through the variety of grace gifts that were active in the church. Charismata. And uh, this is a, a variety that um, is is larger than we might think. Um, we see it in the list that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and also in Romans. Let me read 1 Corinthians 12:4, which you heard Don read last night. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now note, and I, I, I think Don last night was sort of playing off this point a bit, only rarely does Paul speak of the Spirit in individualistic terms. There's a few verses you can make that case, perhaps. But normally Paul speaks of you and us, plural. Many texts there, Romans 5, 5, Romans 8, verse 9, Romans, um, and verse 11, 15, 23, and so forth. He speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, so the one body is a function, Paul says, of their common experience of the one spirit. One spirit, therefore, one body. For Paul, the shared experience, the shared experience of the spirit, was fundamental to the Christian community. Now, let me let me put it a bit, um, you know, maybe not shockingly, but um, sh- uh, maybe a little boldly. I think it's fair to say that for Paul, membership in the one body of Christ was charismatic membership. Let's just say that. Each member, if Paul is to be taken seriously, each member has his or her own gift. No one is lacking the Spirit's gifts of grace. See Romans 12, 4 through 8. The charismata, or grace gifts, are richly varied and are given for the sake of building up the body that is for the common good. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I would say we find seven such lists of grace gifts. I'm not going to read them all, but um, beginning at chapter 12, 8 through 10, And then all the way through down to chapter 14, verse 26, you find different little sections where he's listing gifts and note the considerable diversity in language and nature that that you see here in these seven lists. And then again in Romans 12, six through eight, Paul includes a somewhat different list of grace gifts. Clearly Paul doesn't have a set number in mind but views the Spirit's gifts in the body as widely diverse, even too diverse to fully list. And Indeed, God's great gifts were experienced in every sphere of the Christian community. And it wasn't, I would suggest, not limited to the phenomena described in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And note, for example, here in another text where Paul expands the doctrine of the charismata to the range of circumstances in which believers find themselves living. Paul in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is defending his own celibacy and says there that he regards the capacity to remain unmarried and avoid sexual temptation as a charisma, a gift. And then he says in verse 7, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. Everyone. So whether married or unmarried, whether a slave or a free person, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, God's gracious gifts are given in each and every life circumstance. And even Romans one, Paul says to the, the Roman Christians, I, I, "I long to come to Rome, so so that I he says can impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong." Let's go a little further here and be a little, maybe even a little stronger. When church members, when Christians refuse to acknowledge and exercise the Spirit's gift, they quench the Spirit, mm. and even, we could say, in the process, cease to function as members of the body of Christ. Paul Paul doesn't conceive of two kinds of Christians, charismatics and non-charismatics. Those who have grace gifts to serve the body and those who don't. Those who minister to others and those who only receive ministry. That's how Paul thinks. James Dunn, who's written hundreds of pages on the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, summarizing Paul, puts it this way, to be Christian is to be charismatic. One cannot be a member of the body without sharing the charismatic spirit, the gift-giving spirit. In other words, Paul doesn't envision passive membership in the body of Christ. To be baptized into Christ through the Spirit means initiation into active, Spirit-gifted membership. Now, if we we had a a lot more time, we would need to get into the issues about discernment and testing the spirits. And... um, so, so that the mere claim to possession of the Spirit's gift isn't, for Paul, evidence that one has the gift. In fact, Paul, as you may recall in Second Corinthians, has to counter the charge by some at Corinth that he is not a man of the Spirit. And his opponents there have built a somewhat impressive case based on their own gifts and their own ecstatic experiences. Paul's not very impressive measured against theirs. And they say, this is what it means to possess the Spirit. Paul, you don't have it. And Paul counters their claims by an appeal to his weakness as a demonstration of the power of God in his own ministry. And he knows that the claim... To some sort of powerful and ecstatic experience is not final evidence that one possesses the spirit. Indeed, Paul's important point is that, that God's power can work through human weakness so that the power of the Holy Spirit is not self-evident to many people who see it. So the community faces the matter of discerning the spirits, Paul says, Don't despise prophecies, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20, but test everything. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 lays out three basic criteria. I'll just list them but not elaborate much. Number one is confession of Jesus as Lord because the Spirit's mission is always to point to Jesus as Lord and to form us into his image. That's what the Spirit's mission is. And secondly, of course, this chapter 13 shows love. is supreme over it all. It's the supreme test. Love in the body, building up the body in love. And thirdly, it's building up the community of faith, as you see, and uh, as Don rehearsed for us last night uh, in chapter 14. The key for Paul, I would suggest, <clears throat> was his identification of the spirit as the Spirit of Christ. That's a phrase you begin to encounter in Paul's writing, the Spirit of Christ. So the Spirit always shapes believers more and more into the image of Christ, into the likeness of Christ, always produces the fruit of Christ-like character, Galatians 5. And note, this image of Christ that's being formed in us is not only of the exalted Christ, the triumphant Christ, it's also of the crucified Christ. James Dunn again. As soon as charismatic experience becomes an experience only of the exalted Christ, and not also of the crucified Christ, it loses its distinctive Christian character. This is not about some sort of wonderful Spiritual experiences, disconnected from something. It's always about Christ and the mission of God through Christ. The spirit of joy in fullness is also the spirit of self-sacrificing mission. I try to capture this. Um, I, two chapters near the end of uh, my book uh, try to capture these, these two dimensions. One chapter is called Soaring trying to capture the sense that in the Spirit we can soar, as it were, on the eagle's wings, so to speak. And we can experience intimacy with God, and we can begin to be transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit. And wonderful things, but the chapter that follows it, I've entitled Groaning, coming out of Romans 8, 26 and following. The Spirit isn't just about joy and fullness and soaring. The Spirit is also about purgation working to transform those deep, hard, untransformed places in our life. And it it sometimes takes like fire to do it. And if we're caught up into God's mission and the power of the Spirit, that way of mission, like it was in Acts, is always a way of suffering and uh, opposition. And the Spirit empowers us for that as well. even say that, um, and I do say in that chapter, that uh, the Spirit is with us in our laments. The Spirit enables our lament. We lament lament in the Spirit, just as I think Jesus did on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that was his groaning, as it were, empowered by the Spirit who was with him. So, for Paul, the ultimate criterion for discerning the Spirit's activity and gifts is not the presence of power and gifts, but the confession, Jesus is Lord, and lifting up of him and his mission. Often, often out of our desolation and weakness. The criterion for the exercise of the Spirit's gifts is their use in a way that enables people to see and enter God's kingdom mission anything less than this begins to move move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself again one more time one more sentence from James Dunn: for Paul charisma charisma never amounted to anything unless it expressed the chorus the grace of God manifested most clearly in Christ now I have one more and maybe the even maybe larger more significant point to make about this here um, sometimes you may you may hear the phrase I don't, maybe you haven't of the spirit of God is the eschatological spirit that's a sort of technical term. But here's what that means and I want to try to highlight briefly the significance for what we're talking about here. For Paul there is a, you call it an already not yet framework to understand the Spirit's work. Um, the Holy Spirit in this in this regard is the power of God's inbreaking reign. In the New Testament the, the the messianic age has come god's future is already beginning to break in to the old order of things and the spirit is the power of that inbreaking i think that's probably the most fundamental truth about the spirit in the new testament a truth by the way that became lost in the christendom centuries it's also why mission got diminished Permeating the New Testament is the claim that the disciples of Jesus live in the overlap of two ages the present this present age and the age to come the end time the already and the not yet the holy spirit is the presence and power of this inbreaking age to come And this tension, I suggest, which runs all through the New Testament, provides the dynamism and the energy for discipleship and mission in the present overlap of the ages. The receding of this tension drives apart spirit and mission and weakens the missional calling of the church. Um, and as I said, the, in, the, the sense of this inbreaking of the power of the Spirit eventually diminished in the, in the uh, Christian tradition. We could argue that by even the late third century, Spirit and eschatology have become separate, separated. The Spirit's end time work in the church was minimized, and the new creation effects of Jesus' victory were mostly postponed to a future promise of heaven, so that the Christian life becomes more of a holding tank waiting for heaven, rather than a spirit-filled community of mutual ministry and gifting that uh, is called out, compelled out into the world on the mission of Mm -hmm. God. Here's the way uh, one writer recently put it named Patrick um, Mish- uh, Patrick Mitchell. If the church loses Paul's razor-sharp awareness of the eschatological shape to the Christian life, the motive for mission and discipleship inevitably drains away. And churches become club-like, docile, sleepy, and bored. So, here's what I want to. Here's why I said that right now. What also diminished with with along with the end time orientation, in especially in the Christendom centuries, but it's still with us in many ways, was the universe. What you might call the universality of charisma. that is, the every member giftedness by which each one ministers to the common good of the one body and participates in the mission of God. In the Christendom centuries, the clergy came to minister to a mostly passive laity. As Emil, Emil Bruner put it years ago, quote, the, the ecclesia became a dispensing entity rather than a ministering fellowship. That Does that look a little familiar sometimes? And now, uh, but, but now after Christendom, going back to my argument from yesterday, after Christendom, or in America, after Neo-Christendom, The New Testament's every member giftedness and the diversity of the Spirit's gifts are becoming a larger possibility. It's being renewed. I like the way Jurgen Moltmann put it, addressing this very point. He says, The Christian church will be open for the diversity of the Spirit's gifts to the degree to which it wins back its original eschatological orientation towards the in-breaking new creation. Um, he's saying to the extent that we retain we, we this, this, this sort of in time eschatological dynamism, which in the New Testament is the central work of the spirit, guess what? the Spirit's of giftings for ministry and mission will break out all over the place. And you look at, any, you look at the, 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 the Christian movements in the global south, and you see that passion for evangelism, passion uh, for um, <clears throat> serving the needs of broken people. Um, it goes together, mission and the Spirit. The Spirit as the foretaste. Paul Paul uses the imagery of the foretaste, the down payment, the, the deposit on what is to come. We're already experiencing it, already tasting it, already enjoying it. The banquet table, we've already gotten some taste from the banquet feast of the age to come. That's what we're talking about. And then Paul envisions that with the functioning of Christ's gifts to the body, to every Member, this is Ephesians four. He says it will be, it will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Disciples, he says, will grow up into Christ, and the body, will he says, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's the universality of charisma. And if we want to parse those, that broad and diverse range of gifts that every member gets in the, want to pluck out a few of the ones that trouble us, okay, we, we've done that for years, but it doesn't seem to make much sense to me, uh, exegetically or theologically. Okay, we have 12 minutes, or 13, left uh, in this session, and I, I'll, I'll be glad I have a closing um, I don't know what I would call it a closing, a closing Exhortation and, or something. Uh, three quick, three points. But I, I am going to open it up for two or three questions right now, if they're not too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Could you uh, expand a little bit on the manifestation of the global South spirit? How is that being manifested in? Well, in in, in many different ways. I mean, I, and I'm not a specialist in the Christianity of the global South. I've read a lot and you know, tried to learn a lot. Here's one example uh, that I've had many firsthand testimonies about just in the last year or two. Um, in a lot of the um, um, North Africa and some of the Muslim strongholds in, in those regions, there are hundreds of thousands of people converting to Christ. Wow. And I think there's a there's a website run by a, 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 a man that does evangelism among Muslims and, and By his calculations, about 60% of those come from dreams. Dreams about Jesus. And you hear some of these stories. They're they're just remarkable. I I have some actual written testimonies of people converted in the last two or three years who knew nothing about Jesus and who have dreams about him and leads them to, to inquire and to begin to find some help to learn about this Jesus they dreamed about. Okay, there's a way. Um, in, uh, in China, you know, th- we've heard about for decades now, this underground church that has been growing amazingly in China. It, uh, it's uh, the Han Chinese movement, it's called, and, and it's hard to estimate the size of it. Some would say 80 million Chinese in these underground. And most of it comes, most of the conversions and growth of that comes from healings and answers to prayer as well as dreams and visions it becomes a normal way that the, the church grows in China. Uh, in Africa, it has, there's a, a, a lot of diverse different manifestations of that, but I uh, don't get the idea that this world, this, this global south movement uh, we call Pentecostal Charismatic is somehow, um, uh, it, it's very diverse. It's hard to even classify, a lot of them are indigenous movements, not based in Western colonial mission work. Um, and um, that's why Diana Butler Bass, as I quoted yesterday, says in the, in, the, in the global south, they can hardly keep up with the spirit. In the west, um, we can hardly perceive uh, it. Uh, it's a, it's a, and there are all kinds of ways to come at it there, but that gives you a little taste of things, at least, that I've been aware of. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, For a fellowship that has been leery in embracing the giftedness uh, of the Holy Spirit, yet who is experiencing a renewal in the importance of mission, how would you advise one to overcome that, the barrier uh, of not really understanding embracing the giftedness to, so that they can see you know, the interconnectedness of well, the one That's a great question, and let me just give a one or two-minute answer <laughs> just maybe get you get started in thinking a little bit. One is to um, do some good theological reflection. And what I've tried to do here today and in, in my writings is to re- reframe some of this, <laughs> and particularly to reframe it in the frame of the Trinity. What I'm after in my own Christian life is to become, I like to say, fully Trinitarian. Not Pentecostal or this or that. I want to become fully Trinitarian. And by that I mean, uh, to to be fully Trinitarian means to follow the risen Lord and His disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory and praise of God the Father. And most every Christian tradition, in those terms, has some weak spot in their Trinitarianism. For us, it's been the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for, for, um, for Pentecostals, it, it may, it's probably uh, a kind of um, mature, maturing in discipleship of Jesus. They need a, you know, a stronger Christology, you might say. So think in Trinitarian ways. And, become, and seek to become unashamedly fully Trinitarian. That, that to me is a safe, I mean, well, not too safe, but it, it's a balanced and rich way to think about renewing the spirit of mission. And, and think about the spirit as the spirit of mission. That's what the spirit's mission is, to empower the people of God to continue the mission and ministry of Jesus. And sometimes we, we just launch out on mission and uh, start to get burned out, and we realize <laughs> we we've got we need more power than we've had. We've come at it that way, and sometimes maybe we, we get launched out on mission because we've experienced that new power and that new joy. Uh, one more question for now. Just go right here. Yeah. Yeah, actually, thank you, because I would like to follow up on that, um, because you brought you up another. Program. Is to recognize the intertwining of loving each other in this whole mission. Right? The mission is the church functions to love each other, and if we focus on loving the people we have trouble loving that are hard to love, then we very quickly realize we need God's power, and we, and and, and the sort of questions about you know should I be doing this kind of fall away, right. and and that focus on our role is to look at loving each other. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, that's, that's what it means to... I have a section near the end of this book entitled The Church in the Presence of the Spirit. And uh, that, that's how the church is. The Spirit is the locus. Um, the church is the locus of the Spirit's dynamic presence for loving one another, for carrying out the mission of God together, not as private little individuals sort of getting beat up out there, but together. And so the spirit always creates fellowship with Christ and with one another. Okay, um, okay. I'll, I mean, let me move to my final little concluding point, and I'd be glad to talk uh, at length afterwards. With, with. Thank you for your interest and your questions. I appreciate it. Um, I, I want to offer um, sort of three kind of exhortations or suggestions of yes. a, in a practi- somewhat practical nature. In light of this, uh, this sort of reframing that I'm trying to do, and the first one is to um, open ourselves to the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Spirit is the driving energy of new creation. For those who confess Christ and receive the Spirit, and by the way, I, I think that's when you know, we talk about receiving Christ. You know, it, it's the common way of talking about bringing people to Christ. I think we confess Christ and we receive the Spirit. There's a little more biblical way, I think, of talking about that. So when we confess Christ and receive the Spirit, the Spirit endows with power and equips for ministry. For some believers, there may be a sudden, powerful endowment, but with, with this endowment doesn't necessarily or often happen all at once. We, in other words, we can grow in our openness to and our receptivity to the Holy Spirit. Openness, you might say, is a posture that we can assume. We can take a step of openness. And of course, opposition can be one stance that you choose, or indifference. We can say that openness is a human variable. Response can run the the gamut from unbelief to unrestricted surrender. The Spirit can be received in four ways. The Spirit can also be grieved and resisted and quenched and even, Hebrews 10, insulted. And, uh, as Paul said, we can keep on being filled with the Spirit, and this spirit filling can awaken us to greater and fuller dimensions of God's love, to greater longings and passion for the reign of God to come, for the peace of God to fill the earth. The the gift of the Spirit in baptism needs to be more fully received, I think, more richly experienced. We may need, for example, to break through barriers in our lives, places where we are stuck in immaturity and constricting habits. We may need to have our hearts further enlightened to taste the heavenly gift and the goodness of God's Word more fully to experience more, as, as, as Hebrews 6 says, more of the powers of the age to come. We may need the renewing of our minds, to use Paul's phrase, to be more established in our faith and perhaps to get past worldview barriers that in the West keep us so suspicious and unmindful of the Holy Spirit. We need more of the Spirit's power to be disciples. Or to use the the phrase N.T. Wright likes to use, to be God's royal priesthood in the mending of a broken and still groaning creation. But openness to the Spirit, of course, is risky, as you probably well know, because the Spirit is not shy, not tame. Roger Olson asked the question, does this make you nervous? It should. The Holy Spirit is not predictable or safe. The Holy Spirit shatters the status quo, breaking us out of complacency and lifting us up to new heights of spiritual fullness and blessing. If we are open to that, it doesn't just happen. Okay. so secondly. We say that we learn, we pray in the Spirit. That's Paul's phrase. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. The Spirit plays a pivotal role in prayer, and prayer pay, plays a pivotal role in mission. Um, Paul in, um, can say, in, or not Paul, but Jude 20 says, By praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself. God's love. <clears throat> Gordon Fee connects the two imperatives here around the weaponry metaphor. So prayer in the spirit becomes he says the final expression of Christian weaponry. This is that passage in there where he talks about the armor of God. The full armor of God. A prayer is the final expression of Christian weaponry in the conflict with the powers. A way of engaging, we might say, in spiritual battle. Uh, Praying in the Spirit, no doubt, takes uh, numerous forms. One was suggested a good many years ago by John Miller, who contrasted what he called frontline prayer with maintenance prayer. you get what he's saying? There's a kind of, you know, let's maintain the status quo. God help us here with our regular routines to to, to be good Christians. But frontline prayer, Miller says, calls for God to act boldly and mightily in a life-changing way on new frontiers frontline prayer is focused is outward focused not inward focused and calls upon God to act in power so frontline prayer which I think is a form of praying in the spirit is the prayer of the church on mission okay number three I'll I'll finish this and we'll be right on time I hope Third, third thing is leave the house. Amen. Leave the house. Many people today in our digitally wired culture assume it's possible to serve God without ever leaving the house or the church building. We can listen to the best preachers on their podcasts, our favorite worship music on our iPhones. We can worship in online church services, or at least the parts that suit our tastes. We can engage in global issues through click activism, I think it's called, you heard of that? We can avoid or minimize the messiness of community with real people and their irritating issues by carefully limiting our involvement in face-to-face events. That is the trendy way of excarnation. Defleshment, as opposed to incarnation, infleshment, which is the way of Christ. The way of Jesus is the way of incarnation, the way of flesh and blood. The, the spirit, I would argue, and I have a whole section in an earlier chapter of my book, uh, saying that the spirit befriends our bodies. The spirit loves matter. Why? Because for the sake of, his, of, of Jesus, uh, his, beloved, um, uh, his beloved. In Jordan, the spirit came upon Jesus and rested upon his body. We are formed as Jesus' disciples in and as bodies. And I love Don's powerful question last night. What are bodies for? Wow. And so Michael Frost says we need to get out of the house. We need to develop joint practices or habits with like-minded followers of Jesus that bind us more deeply to God, to each other, and which propel us outward into the lives of others, especially the poor, the lost, and the lonely. Leave the house. So the Spirit calls and gifts us disciples for the adventure of God's kingdom coming. And the focus of the Spirit's work is on persons in community. Flesh and blood people like you and me on whom the Spirit has come to rest. Okay, thank you. Time is up.